0: in sunday school that especially the words in the psalms are pretty appropriate for our world i just wanted to read this morning before i got into my sermon what psalm 46 says psalm 46 tells us god is our refuge and our strength always ready to help in times of trouble so we will not fear when earthquakes come and the mountains crumble into the sea. Let the oceans roar and foam. Let the mountains tremble as the waters surge. A river brings joy to the city of our God and sacred home of the Most High. If God dwells in that city. It cannot be destroyed. From the very break of day, God will protect it. The nations are in chaos and their kingdoms crumble. God's voice thunders and the earth melts. The Lord of heaven's armies is here among us. The God of Israel is our fortress. Come and see the glorious works of the Lord and see how he brings destruction upon the world. He causes wars to end throughout the earth. He breaks the bow and snaps the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I'll be honored in every nation, I'll be honored throughout the world. The Lord of heaven's armies is here. Among us, the God of Israel is our fortress. Will you pray with me this morning? Lord, we pray that would be our heart's attitude, not just this morning, but, but always. That you would be our refuge and you would be our strength, that we would place our trust and our hope in you alone and nothing else. As we hear from your word this morning, that we'd be crystal clear on how you are calling us to act and how you're calling us to move in our lives. Not in our own strength, and not in our own power, and not in our own time, but Lord, in yours. And so I pray, Lord, that would come across this morning. May your word speak, and may I just move out of the way so it could be heard. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. What do you think of when I say the word hospitality? I mean, maybe you think of of perfectly set tables and and Pinterest-worthy environments. I mean, let's be honest. I say the word hospitality and many immediately flash to a good housekeeping magazine cover or we think of a Martha Stewart episode. That's what hospitality is all about. Not so long ago on the Food Network, there was a host on there who would come to the end of her show and she would create what she called tablescapes. Elaborately executed decorations, centerpieces, and party themes that were sure to be the rage and the talk of all of your guests. Maybe that's what you think of when I say the word hospitality. Hospitality. On the other hand, maybe you think about an entire business model that has been built on hospitality. In a strict sense, this market is made up of all things dealing with travel and tourism, including hotels and the like. In in 2017, this industry generated an eye-popping $1.6 trillion just in the U.S. alone, representing nearly 3% of the gross domestic product of this country. Without a doubt, the core of the hospitality industry are hotels and other lodging options like it. And in 2018, this slice of the hospitality sector alone brought in $570 billion to the United States. And it goes without saying that there is a lot of interest. In hospitality. There's a lot of money to be made when you get hospitality right, but I also think that there is a great misunderstanding as it has to do with biblical hospitality. And believe it or not, the Bible actually has a lot to say about this concept and this idea of hospitality, including our text for this morning. If you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13, there's a lot that happens in Hebrews 13. I'm just going to read the first three verses and really focus on, for the rest of our time this morning, the first two verses of Hebrews 13. As I told you at the beginning of things this morning, I really kind of struggled with where I was going to go with this this morning, but the more and more that I thought about it, I thought this is exactly what the church needs to hear right now, and this is exactly what our world needs right now, is a good dose of biblical hospitality and openness and generosity in our people. Hebrews chapter 13 says this, Keep on loving each other. As brothers and as sisters, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for some who have done this have entertained angels without realizing it. And remember those in prison as if you were there yourself. Remember also those being mistreated as if you felt their pain in your own bodies this is just really bonus information here. I didn't really put it into the sermon, but I thought it was pretty important because we look at this and we think to ourselves, why is it so important that I show hospitality? And, and you think of a story like um, the Good Samaritan. And at the end of that, it says the man... Uh, takes the the man who is the victim and he takes him to an inn and says care for him. That's a form of hospitality. What we need to understand about the reason why we would have to show hospitality, why this writer to the Hebrews is saying you must show hospitality, open-handedness, open-heartedness towards people, is you have to understand the culture of this day. It wasn't like people just zoomed through towns like we do and they said, hey the Hilton, that's where I am staying tonight. There there were no good places to really stay. An inn was not a great place to stay back in this day. In fact, an inn was full of shady characters, largely prostitution. And so people who were traveling through areas didn't automatically go, you know what, I'm going to stay at the inn tonight. They depended on, they sought, they absolutely needed people to open up their homes and their hearts and their lives to people so that they would be kept safe and be kept well. That's why it's so important for hospitality to be at the forefront for Christians. As you'll soon see as we walk through things this morning, the Bible's concept of hospitality is far different from the hospitality that we've been talking about so far this morning. You see, in this world, I'm convinced our society sees hospitality, and when we think of the word hospitality, really what we see underneath that is the word entertain. I have to be a good entertainer. When I have people over, I need to provide good entertainment for people. Hospitality and entertainment are simply not the same thing. Christian author and teacher Jen Wilkin observes this about entertaining and hospitality. She says first about entertaining. Entertaining involves setting the perfect tablescape after an exhaustive search on Pinterest. It chooses a menu that will impress and then frets its way through every stage of the preparation. It requires every throw pillow to be in place, every cobweb to be eradicated, every child to be neat and orderly. It plans extra time to don the perfect outfit before the first guest touches the doorbell on the seasonally decorated doorstep. And should any element of that plan fall short, entertaining perceives the entire evening to have been wasted and tainted and bad. And this is the key idea here that I want you to catch from entertaining is that entertaining focuses strictly the attention on you, on yourself. Hospitality, on the other hand, is something very different. She continues in her quote and says this, hospitality involves setting a table that makes everyone feel comfortable. It chooses a menu that allows face time with guests instead of being chained to the cooktop. It picks up the house to make things pleasant, but doesn't feel the need to conceal evidences of everyday life. Hospitality shows interest in the thoughts and the feelings and the pursuits and the preferences of its guests. It's good at asking questions and listening intently to answers. And she says at the very end of it, hospitality focuses attention solely on the other. You see what the problem is, right? And I know this to be the case because I live in a house that is not always orderly. It has three kids running all over it all the time. And as soon as you pick up one mess, there are four more messes to clean up. Next to you. So hospitality couldn't simply just mean entertaining. That I just have everything neat and spotless and tidy and in a little box, and everybody be super impressed when they come over, and I've made the uh, napkins into swans. And like th- th- that's not what he's talking about here in Hebrews chapter thirteen when he says hospitality. And the two things can really look very similar. How in the world do we know the difference between hospitality and entertaining? And I think it comes in this. Our motives are revealed not just in how we set our tables. And this is not my attempt to say to you, you know, like you shouldn't do anything wonderful if you're having people over. Do that. It's fine. But don't go crazy with it. It's not just how we set our tables. It's who we invite to sit at our tables. That's the key. Entertaining invites those who will enjoy it and who you will enjoy and who are just like you and who think just like you and who act just like you. Hospitality takes everybody. All comers are welcome to the table. Even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's awkward, even if I don't know you, even if you're not like me and don't think like me and act like me. You see, I'm convinced that so much of our life and what we try to do in life is all about manicuring our image. How will people see me? What will people think about me? And everything that we do is based on that, trying to impress someone else. But biblical hospitality is so, so different. Biblical hospitality is about humbling yourself before other people. In fact, in Luke chapter 14, I have this very interesting story. Jesus is teaching his people about this concept. He's teaching his disciples and he's listening about this concept of humility. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 7. says, when Jesus, Jesus noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. When you are invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? Then the host will come and say, give this person your seat. Then you're going to be embarrassed. And you'll have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he will come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. Then you'll be honored in front of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And then he turned to his host. And when you put on a luncheon, or you put on a banquet, or you have people over your house, don't invite your friends, and your brothers, and your relatives, and your rich neighbors, for they'll invite you back. That'll be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, and the crippled, and the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. That's what biblical hospitality is all about in one single word. Humility. And and on the surface, if we're going back to Hebrews chapter 13 here, and again, we've been in this is our third week now. We kind of started at the beginning. We jumped to chapter five. Now we're in chapter 13. We've done that for a reason because now we're going to come back for the next several weeks and lead up to Easter because Hebrews is a great book to lead us up to Easter but you would look at Hebrews 13, and you would, if you know anything about the book, you would say, why in the world is Hebrews chapter 13 here? In fact, in my Bible, the title of it says, concluding words. Do you know what I call that when I read a book? The appendix. Does anybody ever read through a book and go, ooh, the appendix. Now this is what I have been waiting for. No, you go, done with that, move on to the next thing. But this is not an appendix. This is a very, very important part of the book of Hebrews. The author has just written this this massive and important book about the supremacy of Christ, that Christ is really better in every sense, in every situation, and we get to Hebrews 13, and I encourage you to read it, and what it really is is just a really quick hitting laundry list of things that the writer wants the readers to do, which by and large as you read it, and you have to be really honest, you're like, this kind of seems like an afterthought. In fact, many scholars have said, really? And I don't believe this to be true. I think Hebrews 13 is supposed to be there. But a lot of scholars would say Hebrews 13 was actually added way after the rest of Hebrews is written. I think it's false. But it sort of seems like that. You're like, you just tack this on here and it makes no sense at all. That is unless we read Hebrews 13 in its proper context. If we would move back just one verse or a couple verses before chapter 13 starts, I want to read Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Hebrews chapter 12, 28 says this, Since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable. Amen. Hallelujah. Let us be thankful and let us please God by worshiping Him with holy fear and awe. And what we have to understand is what's really bad about our modern translations Bible and our English translations Bible is we have these wonderful little chapter markings here. We have these wonderful little verses here. Do you know what wasn't there in the original language between verse 28 and chapter 13? There was no chapter 13. And so if you just read Hebrews 12, 28, it, it's supposed to naturally flow into Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1 in our Bibles. And so chapter 13 calls those inside the church, to yes, love people inside the church, but also outside the church, and flows right out of the statement in Hebrews twelve twenty eight to worship God. In fact, what the author is saying is, do you want to know how you properly worship God? Do you want to know how you see Christ for all he is? Do you want to know how you see Christ to be supreme in your life? Keep on loving each other. Show hospitality. Don't forget people who are hurting and lonely and lost and feel like they have no hope in the world. Guys, hospitality throws wide the doors. It offers itself expecting nothing in return. It keeps no record of its service. It counts no cost. It craves no thanks and attention. It's nothing less than the joyous offering of those who as someone has remarked, recall a gracious table set before them in the presence of their enemies, of those who look forward to a glorious table yet to come. Guys, in short, and what I'm trying to get at, and what I'm trying to say is hospitality is a means by which we imitate our infinitely hospitable God. Do you understand that and realize that? From the beginning of Scripture and the beginning of time, God has demonstrated his hospitality towards us. And what God wants us to do, and Hebrews 13 isn't the only place that hospitality shows up. It's all over the place. What God is trying to get us to see and get us to understand is, I want you to imitate and be like me. Be hospitable. Be open. Be loving. Be gracious. Be generous in all things. Guys, God first showed love to us when we were strangers by inviting us into his family. And his eternal home, he's commissioned us to go into model hospitality. If you have your Bibles open, Deuteronomy chapter 7, going way back on this one. Deuteronomy chapter 7, God is addressing the nation of Israel, and he says this, And again, in my Bible, the title of all of chapter 7 is The Privilege of Holiness. I would retitle it and say it's The Privilege of Being Welcomed by God. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, it says this, For you are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. The Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations. For you were the smallest of all nations. I love verse 8. Listen. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you. It's as simple as that. He loves you, and he was keeping the oath that he had sworn to your ancestors. That is why the Lord rescued you with such a strong hand from your slavery and from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And there are some of you who are saying, awesome, that's wonderful, Ryan. But that's Israel, right? That is Israel. Until we come into the New Testament, we go to 1 Peter chapter 2. And it's almost the very same words that he says to, to Christians, to Christ followers Picking up in verse 9, he says you are a chosen people. The very same words he uses back in Deuteronomy chapter 7. You are a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Dear friends, and then listen to this. These last two verses are so important. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners. Isn't that a very interesting phrase that he used in talking to his people? As temporary residents and foreigners, keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. And then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world hospitality, and God's abundant graciousness towards us is why Peter would say two chapters later in his first letter, in 1 Peter 4, verses 8 and 9, he says this. Most important of all. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read a letter and I see the phrase most important of all, I probably want to take notice because the author is trying to tell you what? This is most important of everything that I've ever said to you verse 8 continue to show deep love for each other for love covers a multitude of sins verse 9 right after it cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay what does that sound like guys oh, it sounds like hebrews 13 doesn't it my point to you is this is all over the bible Interestingly enough, again, what is linked together in the concept of hospitality? Love for one another leads to loving others. That's what Hebrews 13 is telling us. Hospitality, it literally means love of strangers. Or or more specifically, to gain the love of strangers. It was a defining mark, guys, of the early church. It's often what set the church apart and distinguished them from unbelievers in their community. Guys, this kind of of love and graciousness is infectious. It's noteworthy. People sit up and they take notice when they see real hospitality because it is so unpracticed in the world. It's always been the mark of a spirit-filled and an empowered church in every single generation. In fact, Emperor Julian, back in the days of the Roman Empire, Emperor Emperor Julian was a a really nasty man. He was a very harsh persecutor of the entire church. And he said in a complaint that he wrote to one of his uh, underlings, Orsatius, he says this, Nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of the Christians as their charity to strangers these godless Galileans provide for not only their own poor, but ours as well. Do you see what Julian is really doing? He's ticked off. It's like, darn it, we're Roman. We should be taking care of stuff, but we're not doing a very good job of it. But you know who is? Christians. People who follow Christ. Even the emperor of the entire Roman empire understood biblical hospitality and how important it was. Guys, hospitality should not just be a mark of individual lives and in families. It's not something we should display only in our own home. It has to be the defining characteristic of the church. As Pastor Danny Franks wisely says, the hospitality of a church, and I love how he says this, it can adorn the gospel and it can encourage faith. And then he says, on the flip side, a cold, unfriendly church contradicts the gospel message. Ouch. The gospel message is that God has been insanely hospitable to us. So how could we be any less than that towards those around us? Like, guys, this isn't even a, this isn't even like a negotiable thing. Like, you know what? Like, okay, so I believe this. There is the spiritual gift of hospitality. But do you know what should reside in every single one of us? Some sort of a hospitable spirit. It is, like I said, it's not just a suggestion or a recommendation, like here's how you be a really good Christian. It is a command of Jesus Christ be hospitable. Have a hospitable spirit that your life would be open to other people. Guys, hospitality ought to be one of the things that is most noticeable about us as Christians about the church body. Guys, I don't say this lightly, but I think that hospitality is actually and probably our most persuasive, apologetic, especially in the world, especially in the culture that we swim in today. And I say that for this reason, because sin has a way of affecting us and what does sin do to us all the time? It causes us to actually run away from people. It causes us to run away from differences. It causes us to run away from people who are not like us. We turn away from things that aren't familiar. We turn away from stuff that we don't know. We shun what we don't know. But let me submit this to you this morning. Wouldn't Jesus have moved towards the people and towards the things that everybody else ran away from? In fact, there, there's a Latin term, and I, I only say this term because it makes me seem really smart and educated when I say this Latin term. There's a Latin term that is, says incurvitus in se. And, and it was popularized by Martin Luther, and it meant that by nature, every single one of us has a tendency to curve in on ourselves. Theologically, it's a life lived inward for yourself rather than outward for God and for other people. And what's really interesting to me, if you read Hebrews 13, and if you really wanted to like, dig and dig, and you wanted to get back to the original language, there is a play on words that happens here in the Greek that we would miss in our English translation between love one another, brotherly love, and hospitality. When the author says to keep on practicing brotherly love, he uses the word Philadelphia. It's exactly why we have a city that's called the city of brotherly love. That's a Greek term. And when we come to verse 2, he says to show hospitality or love towards strangers, he uses the word phyloxenia. They're the same root and the same idea. Love brothers, love others. He's talking about a love that starts in the church and overflows outside the church and into the streets. And the interesting part, though, guys, is that we have taken the root words xenia that he uses there the original intent to turn towards one another, particularly strangers and foreigners, and we have substituted another mindset, another behavior. You know what's coming, right? There's a word and a phrase that we use that's called xenophobia. It's the fear of things that are not like us and people that are not like us, things that we don't understand, we turn away from. Guys, there has never been a more important time to not curve in and cower than right now even before the pandemonium of the last few days we have to recognize that we live in a very lonely world a world of isolation and a world of fear and a world of skepticism strangers all around us are yearning to become our neighbors Our neighbors need our open-handed hospitality far more than they need to be impressed with us or our skills or how great we can make our home look. Guys, neighbors all around us are yearning to be family. Guys, as a family of God, let's open our doors. Let's open our lives to them. There is perhaps no more well-used metaphor in the Bible than family to talk about the church. Especially in Paul's letters, he talks about family. So let's start acting like a family and let's start practicing hospitality. And I think it's so important because, as I said earlier, I I just don't think people really know what it looks like. And I believe the church is uniquely positioned to, to give permission for what hospitality is, to model how we live well with one another. But here's what this really means, and this freaks us out. It means that we need to move first. We don't wait for anybody. We don't wait for anything, but we need to take the first step, and we need to move. In fact, John Piper, in one of his great sermons, he's talking about hospitality, and he says this, and these are, like, these are powerful words, guys. When we practice hospitality, we become conduits of God's hospitality instead of self-decaying cul-de-sacs. The joy of receiving God's hospitality decays and dies if it doesn't flourish in our own hospitality to the other. Guys, I want you to listen to what he is really saying. Our joy... Our growth in the Lord can be cut off and can be stunted by not extending hospitality that we have been shown by God. I was working through a book this last week by Rosaria Butterfield, and the the book is called The Gospel Comes with a Key. And she says this, Counterfeit, or what I would call pseudo-hospitality, seeks to impress and to entertain Counterfeit hospitality separates host and guest in ways that allows no blending of two roles. It separates people into noble givers and needy receivers or hired givers and privileged receivers. Counterfeit hospitality comes with strings and then it's the last line that she says that I want you to just burn into your brain. Christian hospitality comes with strangers become neighbors becoming family of God. And here's what would have really been easy for me this morning is was to come to you and be like, hey guys, here's the deal. If you just like do these four things, you'll be hospitable. Guys, this isn't a sermon that gives easy answers, gives all the answers, just wraps everything up in a nice tidy, puts a bow on it. This is a sermon that is intended for us to think and to wrestle for how you could do that better. And maybe instead of three points or a list of suggestions, perhaps the best thing that you could do is to just simply dialogue about this with other people. Ask some pointed questions. And so I'm going to do something this morning. We're going to take just a few moments to do this. I have a list up here of three questions. And we're going to end with this. And I'm going to close with one more thought at the very end. And you're going to look at me when I tell you to do this. And you're going to be like, what in the world is happening? I want you to just turn to the people are right around you, or if you need to move somewhere, I just want you to take some time to, to kind of think about some of this stuff. Because again, I could sit here and I could tell you and give you three nice little points about go do this, be like Jesus, but I think it's more powerful when you can stop and you can process and you can talk about it in the moment. Because there are some things that are going through you right now and you'll be like, I don't know about this. I don't know about opening up my life. This is scary. I'm out of control when I open up my life to other people. That's the point. You are in control. God is in control and he's calling you to something, something bigger and better and deeper than what you have for your life. That where do you sit? If there was a, some sort of a hospitality meter that I could create, where do you sit on that? How open is your life to other people currently? And where would you like to be? And how are you going to get there? I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means you start off and just jump into the deep end and say, all right, I'm gonna have people over my house. Maybe that's not you. Maybe it just means that you know that there's somebody in your life that you've been meaning to reach out to and you can just go and have coffee with them or just lunch at a restaurant. Guess what? You could be hospitable there too. It doesn't have to happen in your home. The point, guys, is that God calls us. God models for us what it means to be open-hearted and open-handed and generous and gracious. And we have to model the same things in our life. I want to close this morning just very quickly. Uh, I ran across a really interesting thought this week that I'd never thought about. Mark chapter 2 is the story of the healing of the paralytic man. You remember, right? Everybody was in the house. Everybody was crowding around. They couldn't see. And so four guys climb up on top of the roof and they start tearing a hole in the roof. It says in the Bible, they remove the roof right above Jesus and lower this guy in. And this, this article I was reading had this question and thought, I was like, I've never thought about this before. They said, in the midst of my reading, my thoughts drifted to the family who hosted this gathering in Capernaum. They speculated it was most likely Peter and his wife. It was Peter's home. And they said, what was on their minds as people filled their home? Like, oh, don't touch that. Don't get close to that. Oh, gosh, don't, don't no mess with that stuff. It says, did Peter's wife glance upward as her roof was being removed. I mean, think about this. This is real people in a real home, and you like, somebody just ripped a hole in your roof. Was she frustrated or was she fascinated? Did the four friends take the time to restore the opening that was created? Or in the midst of all the excitement, did they leave a gaping hole in the middle of the roof? To which we would say, oh, now, isn't that just really very irresponsible? And it brought up this really interesting question I want to pose to you this morning as we, as we kind of wind things down Do you have an open roof policy? In your life? And I would ask it at this way as well Do you have a front porch policy in your life? You remember how things used to be. I remember this. I'm not a, that, that old of a guy, I'm a young buck. But you remember that back in the day, everything took place on the front porch, right? Or if it didn't take on the front porch, it took place in the front yard. What have we done today? Everything has gone to the backyard. We we build massive patios off the back so we can stay there and we can stay secluded and nobody will see us, nobody bothers, nobody will touch us. Do you have an open roof or a front porch policy that you operate off of in your life? They end their thoughts by saying this and I will end the sermon with these thoughts. Are you willing for your life and your home to be filled and refashioned and torn apart so that people can meet Jesus? Are you willing for your carpet to be stained so that the laughter of children can be the music of your home? Are you willing to put aside your concern of impressing other people so that they can focus on coming and seeing Jesus for who he is? What would have happened in Mark chapter two if the owner of that home said, whoa, 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 no holes in my roof. Get out of here. It would have fouled everything up and it would have fouled people up from seeing Jesus and meeting Jesus and who he is. May we do the very same thing in our lives. Will you pray with me? Lord, That's my prayer. The time of prayer is not specifically just to pray for everybody else here that they would do this, but I pray as well. I pray that we would all pray individually that we would do this in our lives. We would open up our homes. We would open up our lives. We would give of our time. We would be gracious. We would be generous in everything that we have. It doesn't mean that we need to give a whole bunch. All it means, and I believe all that you're asking, Lord, is that we just give ourselves. We give ourselves to others, and we give our heart to you. And so I pray, Lord, that we would do that. That our our hearts and our minds have been stirred this morning in such a way that we would begin to ask the question, how hospitable am I? And better yet, the question would be, how much like Jesus am I looking like? And that we would change and we would tweak where we need to to become more like you because that is the end goal of all things. It's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray these things. Amen.